RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in 2009, long after Spitting Image had ended. Roger Law was living in Australia, absorbed in the creation of ceramics. But the ensuing years saw him return to the UK, where he not only resurrected Spitting Image back on television, but shortly a stage show is to open in the West End. That brings us up to date, so join me now, 14 years ago. The name Roger Law is synonymous with the highly successful 80s satirical television series Spitting Image. During its height, the programme reached 15 million viewers each week and created some unlikely cult heroes from the political classes. But despite its enormous success, the Spitting Image company teetered on the edge of bankruptcy throughout its 12-year run, and its creators saw little of the wealth it generated. 20 years on and Roger Law finds it difficult to escape from the programme that tends to follow him around like a faithful dog. Now living in Australia, he has reinvented himself as a potter. But a potter on a grand scale, and spending much of his time in China, where his porcelain creations are made by a team of Chinese craftspeople under the direction of law. Our interview took place at the RSA in London. Well, I have to say that you're the first uh, royal designer that um, I've interviewed that's actually published an autobiography, which, which means that a lot of the groundwork's been done for me because I, I enjoyed reading it a lot. Over the period of your life, and the, the book's called Still Spitting at 60, and, and you're beyond that now, you packed in a hell of a lot of stuff in that period of time. Very varied and very interesting. So I'm going to be struggling, I think, to cover all the bases. But I'm going best to do not my... to bother, really. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to do my best. What I'd like to, to do, first of all, is obviously there's a, there is a big part of your life, which in fact only spanned 12 years, but everything else seemed to be leading up to it. Everything seemed to conspire towards it, which of course is spitting in. But I, I want to just, first of all, go back to your early days in the in the Fens, which is where you were brought up, and and uh, and I think uh, early on you you did work for your father, who had a construction, small construction company, which uh, it was clear I think that you didn't really enjoy very much uh, working in in that sort of area. And I wanted to ask you first of all what the family life was like and whether there was strands of creativity within it. Well, it's hard to explain, but the Cambridgeshire Fens. I mean, it's fifty years ago. I mean, nobody lived there unless they had to. It was damp and cold, and the wind comes from Siberia. And the people that lived there were either agricultural labourers, poor people, or people that made a bit of money running a business. Kulaks, rich kulaks, poor kulaks. And and so what were you mostly doing? Were you just a kid rushing around in the countryside, or were you drawing? Were you, you know... Oh, I, 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 um, I spent most of my time... I mean, actually, the Fens, as a, for a child, is really quite good. There was a lot of wildlife. I knew where everything was. I knew where the pike were. I knew where the birds were. And I had a dog. And, of course, it's the area that Oliver Cromwell came from. Yeah. And uh, whenever they wanted to raise an army, they went to... Uh, the history of it is interesting, actually. People lived off it because they had plenty of fish until the Dutch drained it. 
And I think the police only got in there in about 1910. Uh, you couldn't get in for a long time before it was drained. So it's fairly anti-authoritarian. Yeah. Tom Paine comes from around that way. Oh, right, okay. So yeah. there's a long tradition of all that shit. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, it also is a very puritanical area. Uh, I mean, I don't subscribe to it, but of course it does affect you. Hmm. So you end up uh, learning to work was terribly important, hmm. and not just within my family. I mean, it was a fairly poor area, so you you, know, you wound up with a milk round on with your granddad and a newspaper round and a grocery round and sure the good the upside was you had some money mm. but school didn't play a huge part in your life yeah. it was something to be endured yeah and what about your your do you have brothers and sisters i have a brother who's even bigger than me and was he is he older or younger he's younger and what did he he took over the family business thank christ and does that continue to this uh, no it uh, not in that form Right. It, yes, they all work for themselves. Yeah. But so not. you were you the only person within your family that had this creative ability? I mean, in in traditional sense of the word, I mean. As There's a, no tradition of it really. Um, I mean, my mother, uh, my mother's side of the family knew there was something other than the fans. My grandmother was a great lover of the musicals and knew all the songs. She used. I used to go there a lot. I really liked her, and there was always beer. If you, when you went round there, right from a little kid. Well, actually, I mean, interestingly, that I was going to, that was going to lead me on to one of what seemed to be reading your book. One of your first inspirations was uh, actually observing a sign writer called Mr. I think Mr. 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 Bormer, Mr. Bormer, who who used to describe as being a little drunk a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, I he fascinated me because um, you obviously had to work for your family in one form or another. And whereas the employees were meant to work really hard, you were meant to die for them. I mean, it was quite a lot of pressure. Yeah. And Mr. Bomber always painted the signs over the shops and on the backs of the lorries. Uh, he put it on my dad's uh, building firm, Law Brothers Building Constrictors, which I thought was... <laughs> <laughs> no, but he, had, he, he, he was very inventive and would, couldn't be got to do anything unless he wanted to do it. He wasn't from the fence, he somehow wound up there, probably because he was pissed all the time. Yeah. No one else would put up with him. Yeah. And there was no one else to go to. Yeah. And I thought, well actually, that was rather an attractive way of life, something fun to do. And I think, it seemed to me, it seemed to be clear that the, the person that really encouraged you was your, was your mother, in terms of helping you to kind of find a channel for. Yeah, well, my mum is a nightmare. She would have been, she could have run the Russian army, but of course, women weren't allowed to do much in those days, certainly not in the fans. Yeah. yeah, she understood there was a life apart from the fans. She'd been thwarted in a way. She's a really bright woman. Mm. And my father was a terrific guy and a really hard working fellow, but she used to do all the books and he couldn't, I don't think he could write. So she had a big role to play. Mm -hmm. He was a general foreman on a London building firm at 19. But she had to do all the paperwork. She encouraged me. My old man was quite good too. I mean, he was fairly, for a complete fascist, he was quite liberal with me, really. As soon as he understood there was a living to be earned in the direction that I wanted to go, he wasn't mm. really a problem. He didn't get in the way. Mm. 
So, I mean, that eventually led you to the Cambridge School of Art. Yeah. Which you described as that you'd, you thought you'd died and gone to heaven. Yeah, well, if you live in a, if you live in a place where there, you can't see any future for what's going on in your head, hmm. you start to think there's something wrong with you. And when I got to art school, because in those days you could get a scholarship, yeah. which you didn't have to pay back to the government. Hmm. And when I went there, I couldn't write properly. Mm-hmm. I still do capital letters. Um, so they used to give you a general education in the mornings, French, English and history. And then you went to art school in the, af- in the afternoon. And they took you early, so I think I went at 14. Wow. So they could educate you, as it yeah. were. Yeah. But they'd take you on the back of you know a couple of sketchy drawings. And, and of course... You would you were to meet there somebody that was going to have a big effect on your life, and that was Peter Flark, who you later became uh, partners with in crime, as it yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. But also there was one other person there, of course, that, that you know I can clearly see that that had an influence, and that's Paul Hogarth, the yeah. the illustrator, who sadly is no longer with us. But one of the, I guess, one of the last reportage illustrators, mm. people that would actually. You know, go go actually out to wherever and draw on the spot and be, do it beautifully. And interestingly, looking at your illustration work recently, I mean, in your book particularly, where you've got this lovely fluid approach to your work now, which appears to me to be, you know, has an influence of perhaps we'll talk later about China, but it has that kind of lovely watery sort of immediacy. So there was a rather lovely drawing of the Sydney Harbour, which was just beautiful, and, and it reminded me of Hogarth particularly, not, not particularly, just had an immediacy about it. No, no, it's like quite interesting it. actually, because Paul was in the Communist Party for a long time, and he visited China. He actually met Kibashi, Mao Zedong's favourite brush artist. Oh, really? Now, Kibashi was on the right side of the fence, he was right. a work, from a working family, yeah. but he's also a great brush artist. Yeah. If I had worked as hard at my talent as Paul did at his talent, yeah. I would have done a lot better. Paul had a, that much talent and did an awful lot with it. Yeah. A hell of a lot with it. He did. Um, and he certainly didn't take it for granted. So Paul had two very attractive things. One was, um, I didn't want to be a fine artist because obviously you had to earn money. It never occurred to me that you could just choose a direction and maybe they'd like it and maybe they wouldn't. You had to do some work. Mm. And Paul was a working artist. I believe he was one of the few illustrators in England, that most of his income came from his work. So that was very appealing. He was also totally black and white. I mean, for those... Uh, as a character, you mean? As, as a teacher. Yeah, as a teacher. As a teacher. Yeah. <clears throat> and it suited me. Yeah. It suited me very, very well. I could imagine lots of the other students probably didn't fare as well under Paul. Mm. <clears throat> but for me, he was perfect. Mm. And also... Paul invented himself mm. and you could see again you thought well okay I can I can be whatever I want because Paul had, had sort of achieved that mm. and as a balance to that you had people like Ed Middleditch a fairly tortured fine artist actually but he was a very good influence too because uh, if you're a risk taker and fairly gung ho he would get you down to earth again because he'd make you draw galvanised in bucket for three days at a time mm. which you hated him for mm. but of course it wasn't such a bad discipline at all Yeah. so between the two and you found a lot of um, refuge in um, 
in Hogarth's books, although he had a pretty good book collection, from what I understand. He had an amazing book collection, and what he had, um, I used to go out there, and you, you know, you painted one of the rooms or something like that for your keep, and they all lived out in parts of Essex because it was real cheap. Yeah. A middle ditch lived not far away. There were a lot of artists there. Mm. Um, Randall Swingler, the um, guy that updated dictionaries and a poet, just a big artist community. <laughs> but what I liked best of all was he had a complete collection of uh, Liesid Opera he got from Sir Francis Maynell in his studio. I think they were for writing a book or something. Yeah. But I saw those when I was about 17, and actually, uh, they had a huge impact. Mm. You can make a statement and publish it. It was very topical. Yeah. It took subject, they could be any subject, like milk, medicine, sex, yeah. soldiering. Yeah. Uh, there was a piece on concentration camps in the Boer War, where they virtually predict what happened in the Second World War. There's a picture of Britannia dancing on mass graves. Uh, I'm beginning to see the influence. Yeah, he had a huge impact, yeah. and the caricature was completely brilliant. Yeah. There were 300,000 artists in Paris at the turn of the century, and not all of them could get into the salon. <laughs> and some of them, like Steinland, was hugely respected by people like Lautrec. Yeah. Uh, Lautrec wanted to draw for Lassido, but and they wouldn't let him, because mm. they said he was too bourgeois. Mm. And he wasn't allowed to. So, yeah, I mean... 16 pages, every single page drawing on one particular subject, and that idea went in and stayed, and probably some of the best of my work is really just that re finding different ways to carry out that notion. So, so then, you know, the, once you got fully embedded in, in this um, new world of the art school and you started to meet people, you then started to do a little bit of freelance work for um, the university proper. Um, the Cambridge University, that is, uh, where you started to rub shoulders with and meet various, uh, to become well-known individuals, in particular Peter Cook. Well, Peter Cook, um, the art school was full of girls that had been sent to Cambridge to marry somebody. Yeah. So you had a complete range of upper-middle-class girls, middle-class. I mean, that was another reason for dying and going to heaven. <laughs> and, of course, you never got took too seriously because you were a bit of rough, I guess. But that's great. And one of the girls there, Wendy Snowden, sort of, she was briefly a girlfriend of mine and then became the, girl, the first wife of Peter Cook, yeah. eventually. Uh, and so, again, at that period, the university, Paul Hogarth brought in university dons to teach the history of art. And I used to go to some of the lectures on books that interested me. Hmm. I just borrowed a gown and went. Yeah. The whole thing was you know, much more fluid yeah. than it is now. Yeah. Well, I mean, you actually ended up, I think, living in, in a house that was owned by Peter Cook. Yes, well. I did, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, because I'm sure that was... Um... Well, in those days, I mean, and not until our youngest brothers and sisters arrived on the scene was it possible to live with each other. It was uh, deeply frowned on. Yeah. Um, and I got a lot, a lot of trouble for that, because I didn't really see why you have to... Um, play games, yeah. you know, and so yeah. I just was totally upfront about it. Yeah. But there were enclaves of people doing just that, and Peter Cook had a pub, uh, an old pub that was now bunches of undergraduates living in various rooms, because he earned money from the West End stage. Yes. At the time. Yes. He had Dosh. Yes. Um, and then a, a later, I owned this place 
do for demolition, pretty much as I think he got his. 300 quid for a housing, Georgian artisan house, it's great. And that was full of students too. But that's... But of course at that time, which is, you know, all sort of, it seems to me, would all be sort of seeping into, you know, satire was becoming... Uh, was well, Cook was, Cook was a bit of a mystery. I mean, he was funny because his fantasies were really funny. Hmm. But the middle class, uh, you know, the whole English business of not taking anything seriously, yeah. and the more uh, frivolous you are about something, it's quite possible the more seriously you're concerned about it. Hmm. I mean, that was a complete eye-opener to me. Hmm as a boy from, you know, the from, East Anglian fans. Yeah, yeah. So that took a bit of time to to settle in. Did you feel kind of out of place in this company? How did you feel? Because the contrast, as you say, must have been quite marked. Well, I had a bit of trouble when I first went to art school because you don't know the terms of reference. Yeah. You didn't go to one of those public schools and you hadn't got the same books in your... I mean, what book, actually, come to think of it? <laughs> Uh, you didn't. You had none of that, and then gradually. No, I didn't feel. I felt sure. nothing. Mm. And the public school boys with a bit of money in the background were the same. Mm. The people that were really hard to uh, get to grips with were the poor sods who'd worked their tits off getting up the escalator. All the grammar school boys. Mm. So yeah, I had a lot of friends at the university who were pretty uh, well healed and basically didn't give a shit, and we had a ball. Mm. One notable exception, of course, is Peter, who's a grammar school boy, but, I mean, he didn't really excel at grammar school. So, I mean, he, hadn't, he, he didn't wind up having to take 19 A-levels to get into university. Mm. Tell me then about the, um, how you slowly became connected with, with Peter Fluck. Well, um, Flucky basically made me laugh. That was the connection. Yeah. And I was always in trouble for not taking the course seriously. I mean, it was heavily weighted towards drawing in those days, thank goodness, in retrospect. But you do get very bored doing three, I get bored easily, mm. three days a week live drawing. Mm. So your bored would end up covered in cartoons, which was sort of frowned upon. Mm. And in, oddly enough, after Paul came there, it was easier. But you, like when you took your exams to stay in the art school, there'd be one conventional life drawing with all that light and shade of the old masters, possibly done in brown Conte. Yeah. And then on the right-hand side of the page, there was a line drawing that could come straight out of a rather bad German Expressionist yeah. uh, period. So you had to keep everybody happy. Yeah. And the school was split down the middle. Right. Because you had people that were connected to, I guess, the success people had in the Festival of Britain and then you had the old school. And looking back on it, actually, it was quite a good combination. Mm. I suppose it gives you a, an insight into many areas rather than being absolutely. funneled into one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as you slowly you know, started taking on little bits of freelance work here and there, you eventually decided to, at the end of your time at art school to, to move to London. Yes. I mean, that was inevitable. I'd run Granter as art director, Granter, the university magazine. You found that you could actually contribute something to the general high spirits by being able to draw or make their magazine look better. So I went to London with about nine copies of Granter under my arm. 
And of course, in those days, you had this... Well, actually, nowadays, nothing's bloody changed. Quite a lot of people that ran things were from Oxbridge. Yeah. So Mark Boxer was on the Sunday Times. Yeah. One of the first places I worked for was Queen Magazine. Yeah. And that was the connection. And that stayed the same yeah. all through my life. Spinning images across between the kind of influences that Steve Bell works from, yeah. that I work from, yeah. possibly more American and European influences than Steve, I would think. But that tradition and, and Footlights... From Queen, I think, did you then go to The Observer? I worked on The Observer with Peter Cook, and we did a topical, political, satirical strip. And, as I said, I've been recycling the same shit ever since, really, in one form or another. And that was stopped. We did four or five uh, cartoons for David Astor, and they gave somebody the cat of nine tails. And... He, he had me drawing Rab Butler, he was the Home Secretary, yeah, remember, yeah. and his wife in the garden talking. And whilst he talked, he was knocking the heads off flowers with his walking stick. And I got a message from uh, Astor, he wished to speak to me. And he said, I didn't realise that you included Butler's wife in the cartoon. And I said, well, who do you think it was if it wasn't his wife? And he said, no, you're missing the point. He said, you do not associate public people in their private situations. That's two entirely different things. And I went away and I thought about it, and I thought, no, it isn't. It's one and the same. So I kind of learned in reverse. I thought, well, if you attacked people... But inevitably, it always got you into trouble. Sure. You remember Lord Goodman? I do, yes. Yes, yes, yes. well, I did Lord Goodman for Nova magazine. Yeah with both hands in a plum pie. He had a hand in everything. And he had plums all over his fingers dripping. <laughs> and they killed it. It didn't go out. Considering what was to come much later, that's, um, that seems very uh, kind of, you know, sort of uh, dramatic. You then ended up at the Sunday Times. Yes. Which was a good period because it seemed to me you met Dave King. Yes. Who, you know, is a very... Well, I met Dave King on The Observer. Oh, he was there We as were well. both okay. there. And, of course, once we... The Observer was like a kind of finishing school, a sort of university of journalism. Uh, you know, there'd be old guys that knew all about um, the Kurds, and they would tell you in between freelancing for the Sunday Times. <laughs> they would tell you the history of all that. Yeah. And, of course, once you got actually useful yeah. to the Observer, that was when they would rather you left. Yes. Because you'd start saying, we could do this or we could do that. Yeah. And Astor is a terrific fellow, really. Great paternalist uh, journalist. He go... I think one of the reasons I was hired, he saw Saturday night and Sunday morning. He thought, what well, we need on this paper a few lower-middle-class, working-class views. Or there'd be something on the Wolfton Report and that we needed more gays. And that's how The Observer ran. Oh, well, what you happened... Again at some time, I think it was that the Harry Evans period. Uh, well, no, it was, it was pre-Harry yeah. Evans, just about. Yeah. What happened was there was a guy who worked for Lord Montgomery in the Desert War, and he was a working-class boy and did frightfully well, and he ran the Sunday Times for Thompson, for Lord Thompson, mm -hmm. when Thompson bought it. And they applied a North American approach to hiring people. So this guy, whose name I should remember, but don't, because mm. the short-term memory's mm. gone. Mm. Long-term memory yeah. seems to have gone. <laughs> um, he said, look, just get me the best, but doesn't matter who they are or what they are. 
So King was hired as a brilliant young designer, and he was basically sitting on his thumbs at the Observer. Yeah. And I was hired with him because I used to do the drawings he required, and we'd freelanced a lot. People knew that. We're yeah. inside the business. Yeah. You know, we did everything from issues of Vogue yeah. to whatever. You know, we did a lot of different work. We did England's first black newspaper, and then we were fired for being white. <laughs> Quite right, too. Um, so we'd had a bit of experience. And um, we were hired by the Sunday Times because they wanted professional people. Yeah. That was new at the time. Getting people who were good at what they did was a bit of a novelty. Interestingly, I think that period of the, 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 those early days of the Sunday Times, with such a talented group of people working together, journalists and designers, photographers, people like Don McCullum. Yeah. So, Don was on the Observer too, actually. He, he, he was. And he yes. left with us. Well, I mean, a great little group of people, which clearly, uh, uh, and I know this to be true because I, 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 a year or so back, I saw there was a program about the early days of, or, or the, the sort of creative period of British advertising, and they all cited the Sunday Times as being one of the things that they wanted to better. That's what they wanted to be, you know, spreads from the Sunday Times at that, at that period were held up in great esteem by young, talented people working in advertising, you know, people like David Putnam and, and uh, uh, Alan Parker and so forth, who were very young guys in advertising, and they wanted to reflect that and that. So, and I remember it myself as being, you know, astonishing body work. You know, one week you'd get a whole thing on Stalin, and it would be beautifully laid out, great archive material, you know, great typography, and mostly down to people like to Dave King, who had a particular handle on things. So it was very exciting times. I mean, uh, well, they gave it away. They gave it away. The it, ads paid for it. Yes. I mean, it made something like a million and something a year. Yeah. With eleven staff members. It was the first colour supplement. It was the yeah. first colour supplement. Yeah, I thought. We were brought in. David King and I were brought in because they were going to introduce a new technology, and they wanted people young enough to deal with that. It never happened because of the unions. This is. Yeah, I mean, it took many years. It took later. many, many Eddie, years Eddie later. Shah to um, yes to kind of break that. But that's why we were, we were there. But we sort of knew the run of another. Re- I mean, looking back at the Sunday Times magazine, it ain't that great when you look at it closely. It was the period. Yeah, I think everything has to be looked at within yeah, the context. Within the context. I think within, within the context, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting point because so many people look at the pass through rose tinted spectacles, yeah. and when you actually go in zero in on it you realize actually no it's pretty crude you know but yeah. at the time it was brilliant and i think that's well one was that king cleared all the ads to the front or the back yeah so you had a complete run through the magazine which meant you could have these great yeah. great events the people that were making the million and a half a year because we certainly weren't we were we were paid reasonably well not fantastically but we got to travel we got to but most importantly we got to do what we wanted to do and they let us, because they couldn't work out why they were earning all that money. And in the media, those are the best times. Mm. The same thing happened on Spitting Image. Because yeah. the ads on Spitting Image brought in 300,000 for a 30-second spot. And they didn't quite know how we were doing this with this rude show. Mm. So they left us alone. Mm. And the Sunday Times, for a number of years, uh, six or seven years, was exactly the same. And it was really, I think, that the... Sunday Times, and obviously in other other areas, um, but I think you started very much Sunday Times experimenting with models yeah. and photographing them. 
so creating setups and photographing them rather beautifully at the time, you know, lighting them very well so that they, you know, they were not just two-dimensional things, they had atmosphere to them. And so one would have covers of the Sunday Times and also, I seem to remember also um, Radio Times, you would do things there. Then you, I think, then you produced uh, your book, uh, the Christmas Carol, which yeah. was complete, which I think was Jonathan Cape, wasn't it? Was it a Jonathan Cape book? Or uh, I think that was Penguin. Actually. Penguin. Yeah. Okay, but it, th- that was a series of of just spreads, you know, lovingly put together, in the same way, funnily enough, as say Wallace and Gromit, the way that they liked, yeah. which is in a cinematic way. You were doing the same thing, yeah. way back when, um, and then it it seemed to me that um, it was inevitable that those static pictures should at some point want to do something else, yes. want to move. So, I mean, that brings me on to, you know, the 12 years of your life, mm. you know, which uh, an extremely eventful and interesting period reading your book. And I just tapped into Google today, just out of interest, and there are 766,000 entries in Google on Spitly Image alone. I mean, it's a ridiculously long succession of articles, Photograph everything, and it spanned from from 1984 to 1996, and the mm. audience is peaked at around its, its high point of 15 million, which is incredible. I mean, I know that there are far fewer channels, yeah. and so you know audiences were reacting differently as they are today, where they can just go off and you know look at minority channels or whatever. But it was hugely successful, and. What I find extraordinary about it is that reading, you know, as the events unfold in, the, in its early days, you know, changing producers and so forth, and then getting up to speed and be, becoming a, a major sort of political and satirical influence, how throughout that period you, you didn't appear to be making any money. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, really? <laughs> Absolutely. With 15 million viewers and a huge advertising space. Well, the thing is, we never had any money. And, cap, and, and money talks in any kind of business. They don't set you up as a cooperative. Mm. They set you up as a capitalist company. Yeah. And if you want to do it, it's written on your forehead. I want to do this. That makes you frightfully easy to manipulate. Yeah. So we had, I think we had at 1.2% of the company we started. Just 2%? 2%. So how did you manage to lose the other 98% then? Uh, well, just people came and took it. Whoever so- ran it. So you were not, you mean, you, business-wise, was not your acumen at all? The only reason that Spitting Image stayed on air and was successful was its own success. Yeah. However much money disappeared or was required, it appeared because it was a roller coaster ride of success and people wanting to... Did, did you never question the fact that it was so successful and clearly there was a lot of money being made that perhaps you were not seeing the benefits of that? We took a busy making the programme. I know. It, it, Most it, of it, 80 to it, 60 hours a week. I know. I did, reading that, it was just staggering. It sounded like yeah. some Victorian workshop. Yes, what it was. Sweatshop. Yes. With, with you just... You know, People that had kids and a mortgage never came to work for us because they had to have a life. Hmm. Most of the people that worked alongside me were virtually kids. Yeah. I mean, Tim Watts came when he was 16. David Stoughton, who was also a very good caricaturist, came uh, straight from St. Martin's. And they virtually slept under the benches. I mean, if you had a life, you didn't last at Spitting You never had to sack anybody. 
They just they just died. They died. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about the, uh, reading today, I, I did pull some things off the internet because I, I was interested. And I, I was there was a quote that came up which uh, was very funny. Apparently, Michael Heseltine said in 2000 that he owed everything to Spitting Image. He said, "What was I in 1980? An obscure member of government, and suddenly, Tarzan." And he was getting hello, Michael, everywhere. It was a bloody miracle. Whereas other politicians, not so praising, are very angry about it. I think Roy Hattersley was the original spitting was, image yeah. character that used yeah. to, to uh, spray everyone with saliva. <laughs> but there were others, uh, Norman Tebbit probably, who's not particularly um, over-enamored with the character you created for him, which is this kind of bother boy. Well, I think Hesseltine is being satirical. But... Yeah, I mean, it didn't hurt your career. Paul Foote said that what Spitting Image's main achievement was was every school kid in the country knew who was running the country. Yes, and that's probably of course, true. Yeah. Yes, of course. At that time, a lot of the voice artists that worked are now, of course, incredibly famous in their own right. Well, the reason for that was that Spitting Image had no stars. I mean, puppets don't have agents. You can stick them in the cupboard when they're finished. Yeah. So the, the Argentinian Air Force at Spitting Image was writers and artists and voice artists. Yeah. The last of the pecking order were the poor old puppeteers. Yeah. So people like, um, I saw Harry Enfield the other day. Yeah. And, and of course he worked on them. He did. Yeah. Lots of young people worked on it because of the demands that were made. Mm. And Harry said his whole career has probably been downhill ever since putting him because in two years he learned to do voices, which he didn't do when he first pitched up, write scripts, create characters, and he understood the... He said Spitting Image was like uh, a newspaper with Roger and Peter in the, in the tight room. And there's a lot of truth in that, you know. People learned their... You learned the technical side of it all. Yeah. Because you bloody well had to. So Peter and I had become quite good caricaturists just by doing it. That's a mm. terrible thing in life. You only get good by doing it. Sure. And um, those boys, within six months, because of the pressure mm. of the show, mm. were better than we were. Mm. We're soul-destroying. <laughs> now, of course, I mean, it, it, not only was it successful here, but it did start to spin off into various other countries to greater or lesser success. So did you, did you have a cut of that action or not? I mean, oh, don't, let's get carried away here. Spinning Image was labour-intensive programme. You yeah. do not have a craft process where everything's yeah. handmade yeah. and put in front of a camera no. for television, yeah. especially if you want to make money. Yeah. My overheads were something at the time like £400,000 a quarter. Yeah. That's before you moved. Yeah. It was a very expensive It was a very expensive yeah. programme. And every time you were working on the bench, you'd have incompetent people running it. Not yeah. all the time. Yeah. But it was, a, it, was a, it was talent run. Yeah. And that's not a, never a good idea. Mm. Later, because of my background of small businesses, I actually stopped. I got off the bench, went into the offices, and because we had to, we, we then owed, I, we owed two million quid at one point, mm. and, and got hold of it. And if I'd have made money, I, I, don't, take, I don't take the credit for that. I, was, I found it awful stopping the creative side to sort it. But I had a really good friend called Richard Bennett, a sort of lateral thinking accountant, and we formed an alliance. Basically, I did everything he told me. Mm. Uh, and it was pretty soul-destroying because some of the shit we had to turn out 
to stay in business. Because you were doing ads. We did ads, we did, you know, talking sandwiches, you name it, we did it. Some of which I've wiped from the memory Singing cows. Singing cows, the whole caboodle. But the profit margins at that point were huge. Yeah. Uh, we paid two million back into 18 months. Yeah. And kept everybody employed. Interesting, again, the parallels with the, with the Wallace and Gromit plot, Artman animation, is very similar in that they also produce lots of ads exactly in the same sort of areas. So, mm. uh, whereas now you're not doing the singing cows, they are. Well, that's correct. I don't think you could have a labour-intensive business. Actually, I'd go further than that, because I used to think that um, we were wankers because we couldn't run a business. Mm. Um, I was there in all about 14 years, I think, and I'd run... I mean, Peter would, if he was here, would agree instantly. I ran luck and floor like a corner shop. I knew it down to the last roll of sellotape. Mm. Well, when we got that kind of control at Spitting Image, you still realise that being in business uh, is like constantly being at war. You win the odd battle, mm. but you never win. Yeah. The war's never over. Yeah. And that people like Branson owe millions. Murdoch owed more than Mexico at one point, possibly an exaggeration, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, Running a business um, is <clears throat> essential part of it if you want to have those kind of audiences. Yeah. You get to a point where, at the age of 56 you find yourself jobless because it all comes to an end. Well, you don't retire from show business, it kind of retires you, Yeah, I think. Michael Caine said that. It's very true. Well, he's still doing all right. He's still doing. So at 56, you, you, know, you kind of think, well, what do I do? And I, I think you then, you go to Dartington for a while and there you, you sort of see the work of the, the great potter, Bernard Leach, who's, I mean, I've been to Dartington many times and you know, it, it's dripping with creativity. There's a whole ethos there of, of great craftspeople. And you start to get very interested in ceramics. I know that you've made, uh, you know, during the spitting image period, very famous teapots and, and things. But I'm, I'm talking about ceramics on a completely different level now. Um, well, I think that if you're... Um, the secret to success in the arts and the crafts is you get to be good at something and then you improve it incrementally mm. um, until you're at the top of your professional somewhere close. Yeah. Unfortunately, I never did that. I, mean, I would not be bored. And so I've jumped all over the place. Mm. But within my fiefdom has been the grotesque and the exotic and the humorous, I think. But within that, I've jumped about for more, far more than most people. Mm. So... Spitting image come to an end, and yes, I was pretty burned out. But the gre- the side effect of being successful at something, and and we were, is that people want you to do that, and you can't knock it because you're bloody lucky that they were interested in anything you did in the first place. Mm. So you can't you cannot piss on that. Mm. So the only other way was to go as far away as possible without coming back mm. again mm. so Australia is about as far as well you yes and uh, you know that leads me on to that which seems to be a kind of rebirth you know new adventure um, and I'm also interested and you may or may not want to talk about this but I I'm, it, it interests me that in the background to all this is is your your wife Deirdre and you go off to Australia I think without 
Deirdre, and mm-hmm. you appear to stay there for quite a long time without Deirdre. And then I think Deirdre does go out there with you and discover that she actually rather likes the place. So I just was sort of interested to, to know how, you know how your wife fitted into your world. Obviously, you spent 12 years working flat out. So without prying, and usually partnerships uh, in, in life, and some are married, some are not. But it's interesting, I'm interested to see how that dynamic worked. You can't be as obsessed as I have been and get and, and stay married unless you have, you're very fortunate, and I've been very fortunate. If you Google Deirdre Amston on Google, yep. you will find that there are about four or five ways of making quilts. She invented a completely new way of doing it. And to make a quilt, you can only probably make five a year if it's all hand-sewn. Sure. So all the years I worked on Spitting Image, she was busy making quilts, traveling the world, lecturing, always to wonderful places that I never went to, like Shaker Mountains in the Appalachians or of extinct volcanoes in New Zealand. Always, I went from one shithole to another when it was franchised. Yeah. Uh, so she had... Uh, she also started the Quilters Guild, which is huge now, has its own magazine. Yeah. So she had her own obsessions. Right. Uh, she understood when I... I mean, I was absolutely fed up and exhausted with everything here. And towards the end of Spitting Image, I was actually working for the grandson of somebody I'd worked alongside. Mm-hmm. I mean, something had to change here. Mm. And so the, the trip to Australia was really to find a new direction. Yeah. Now, if you don't improve your skills incrementally and stay within that bracket, what you have to do is put yourself in situations where you frighten yourself and you have to come up with something Hmm. to get yourself out of it. I react to those situations much better than sitting in a room getting better incrementally. And to go to Australia with, at that time, absolutely no money. Yes. All the money was in the courts. Yes and none of it was released and reinventing myself to a degree finding another way to use that same minuscule talent to start again Mm. that was the name of the game and I had to, I knew nobody I didn't use Spitting Image because that was of no help I didn't want to make puppet programs in Australia Australia. I mean you started to teach a bit or lecture a bit or Work yes. within the education system a bit. I worked the education system for ready money. I made some terrible mistakes mm. because I was doing some in Sydney and some in Melbourne and I thought it was like London and Birmingham. So I used to have to travel overnight, teach, and travel back overnight. But yeah, that helped a bit. But basically I was given a, I was given a cell in the National Arts School, which was the first prison, Darlinghurst Jail. Jimmy Blacksmith was there, the Aboriginal that got mm-hmm. hung. Yeah, yeah. Some quite good rokes. So I felt quite at home, really. And probably all the bricks were made by early, uh, yeah. early settlers. Everything well. there was built yeah. by them. As a special reward for surviving the boat trip to Sydney, they were allowed to build their own prison. So I was there, but it suited me fine because I could go there. It made a centre for me. Mm-hmm. And I used to spend long hours there. Uh, so you're like back at Spitting Image, you've got a studio, you're spending long hours somewhere. I was there one night and the security guy said, look Roger, I've asked you four or five times, I want to go home. It's half past nine. And I thought that would never happen again. Because Spitting Image, in the end, partly running it, partly as a sort of overworked art director, just 
controlling the standard, you never really lost yourself in what you were doing. Sure. Which is how we started. Mm. I mean, Peter and I often, days would just disappear trying to solve one problem or finish a job. And obviously you wouldn't do it unless you loved it, you know. No, well, I think, you know... A lot of string image we did, I didn't love. No. No. No, I think, you know, creative obsession is one thing, but when you get into creative management, yeah. it, is a bit, it can be very soul-destroying. Well, place. it was really hard because everyone else... I mean, John Lloyd had done Blackadder. Yeah. And there were other places for him to go. Yeah. I mean, even Peter, in a way, because he's a very ingenious fellow mm. and a lateral thinker and can keep himself... I mean, he's only really interested in how we can do this, yeah. you know? Yeah. And Doug would never make any claims on... He hadn't the abilities to run a business, and why would he want to? Mm. But I sort of did. Mm. And also, I, I felt, and I could be wrong about this, I felt totally identified with the, with the programme. Mm. There wasn't any way you could slip away. And mm. it, it was sort of you, really. You're now in Australia... Um, by that I mean then we're talking yeah. back then you arrived in Australia you, you, you worked the ed education system as you say and then you go off to, to China and uh, start to look there at um, I think ceramic the making and so forth and, and become very interested in that whole process and I know that now you know looking recently you sent me a link to a little mm. website which shows what you've been doing and interesting, the thing I found interesting about the photographs on that site, which are very beautiful, I have to say, is that you're in another sort of, if you like, workshop situation. This time you're creating enormous uh, pieces of ceramic, which have on them hand-carved, crafted birds and all sorts of things, foliage, very, very ornate urns, huge urns. And you've got a team of young Chinese working with you and it sort of must <laughs> make you think is this a kind of child of spitting image it's an, another sort of little workshop where it's very labor intensive very craft based it seems to me looking at those those beautiful uh, things that you're doing with you on your hands and knees very much with all these other young kids working away absolutely right I couldn't put it better myself I mean Australia uh, everybody does eight different things to live especially artists. Mm. You'll see an artist working in a workshop and then you'll see him mending somebody's ornate ceiling. And then you'll go to uh, a musical evening and he'll be singing Mexican music with a squeeze box. They don't specialise because the food chain's too small. Yeah. And China's had a huge influence on Australia. Mm. A lot of their major artists, Fred Williams, Ian Fairweather actually lived in China. It's everywhere you look, especially if you're an outsider, because you don't, you know, yeah. when you look at it. Yeah. And of course, uh, they in welcomed a great number of Chinese contemporary artists off to Tenement Square, mm. and one of those people had a show at the Powerhouse in Sydney called Hashian, and I made it my business to get to know him because it was the most powerful ceramic show I'd ever seen, and uh, to their everlasting credit the Australian Arts Council sent him to Jing de Zhen because the work was based on Jing de Zhen. It was heads, same size as spitting image puppets, uh, of Chinese workers, life casts, and then he'd taken traditional decoration. And the Chinese are really ornate. Everything has to be perfect. 
put it on the faces like stains or like tattoos yeah. and stuff that you'd eaten off when you were a kid suddenly he made you look again yeah. and so I thought this was just amazing it is amazing and he took me to Xing de Shen uh, not the first time I went to China I went with a guy called Ray Hughes as an art dealer and became very familiar with people now actually they, some of them were living on Hedgehog when we went there and <laughs> And now they're richer than, say, rock stars in the 60s. Unbelievable in such a short time. Uh, that's not a world I'd aspire to, really. I mean, it reeks of spitting image. And some of the workshops I went into in Beijing yeah. reminded me you know, some 50-foot woodcuts, 25 people with black and deckers cutting out his drawing. And you think... I don't want any of this. We've been there, done that. You could feel the overhead. So it was a kind of... The, the overhead was bearing down on the whole... <laughs> so it was a Chinese Andy Warhol situation. Yes. Yeah. Spitting image. That's factory. the real spitting image, factory. Yeah. Jing de Zhen is a city where everybody makes things. Yeah. Uh, they're not paid huge sums of money, but they are hugely skilled. I've been fairly varied because I didn't sit doing just the one thing. But I'm actually quite specialised compared to an Australian. Mm. And the English are quite specialised until recent years. But the Chinese are, leaves us far behind. Yeah. And finding a way into that is really difficult because they do what they do. You have to meet them halfway. My first big mistake was modelling there because that's what I can model from years of sitting on that sodding bench. Everything's made from porcelain. Yes. Really, really hard it's to tricky model. Stuff to work yeah, it has no life. You twist it yeah. one way, you don't like it, you yeah. try to do it again, and it, all... and it just is there's no life, there's no spring, it's like dog shit. Yeah. So stoneware will do that, yeah. but not porcelain. Yeah. So I waste a lot of time, I lose one, I, I get one out of ten. Something's wrong. So I look around, no modelling in maybe the simplest things, tacked on. Mm. But it's carving. Yeah. Then finding someone to work alongside you, they say, what do we want to learn that for? We're only ever going to do it once with you. Then what are we going to do? We don't want to do it. Mm. So like Spitting Image, you have to find a talented child and then exploit them. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Sound like Fagin now. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> totally. But then again, you see, you pay over the odds yeah. and you teach them they're young enough to take it on board. What they hate is that all of that decoration in Jing Shen mm. is based on linear pattern mm. and, you know, just to bring it to its lowest common denominator. In the Chinese like everything perfect and really ornate. The Japanese like everything artsy-fartsy and the Koreans have real soul. Things are left alone. It's all about the clay. And they're the most beautiful oh, work. Yes. But if you're an over-the-top merchant, China's the place for you, yeah. which is where I, why I ended up there. But I don't particularly like the way they are perfect and everything's untouched by hand, although it's made by hand. Mm. So I had to corrupt somebody to make very strong graphic images, yes. which is much more European, mm. and cut deep into the porcelain. And, I mean, the result is these these very, very uh, three-dimensional yeah. sort of relief, very large urns. And, and what, um, where do you exhibit them or where do you um, sell them? Where, well, where I, saw, I, had a, I had a couple of exhibitions in London. The last one was... Did the, you have it the, in Bond Street? At yeah, the, yeah, the Fine Arts. The fine and that arts was a successful show. Good. 
The problem at the moment is that they're big things to oh, lug huge. around. Yeah. And you've got to charge a certain amount for them. But I was originally asked to go to China to do, I did some drawings of uh, I was in Tottenham at the time. You see these extraordinary looking people. I saw this sort of Benin woman on the bus, this sort of black, flat head with two pink bunches of hair. And I thought, well, actually, you could do London types or Asians that have got a sort of Akamova 20s haircut, only they're boys, mm. with a high-cut cotton shirt and the hair falls in front like that and then goes back like that mm. behind the collar. Mm. And I thought, well, then you could do some extraordinary faces. Mm. Because the Fine Arts Society thought, well, yeah, this is, this is OK. This is what he's meant to do, really. But because I only got as far as Yingdishen, and they were really pissed off about that. But now they think that they quite like to do something. Mm. And now I, I've, I, I, I mean, I don't particularly want to show right in the middle of. Uh, I mean, this situation economically changes hour by hour. Yes, and well, let's let's just talk a moment about where you are right mm. now. I mean, you're in London because you're gathering up all of the the debris from spitting image in your life, putting it into a big container to yeah. uh, to hide away somewhere, packing up and going back to Australia to become an Australian citizen. Yeah, well this is I was thinking about that this morning, you see, this is life has absolutely no meaning. You know that. And you see, I'm becoming an Australian, so I don't spend so much time in Australia. And I need to come back here. I've got eight grandchildren, all of my income comes from here. So I have to become a citizen so that I can come and go as I please. In order to have freedom. Yes. This is completely strange, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I'm going to round off now because I, we come to the yeah. end. Of the, so what I'd uh, like to end on, really, is that, you know, there will be people listening to this program who have followed your career, aspiring young uh, illustrators, people that want to get into the world of perhaps puppeteering, because it still kind of exists, I think. What kind of advice would you give to any young designer that's wanted to be very much following in your kind of footsteps? Well, I wouldn't recommend it, really. <laughs> it's just Why wouldn't you recommend it? Simply because you feel that, that, that you've not had a, a fruitful and enjoyable time? I mean, OK, putting aside the, the, the lack of business acumen, which I think is most designers are, are, are that way inclined, unless, as you say, they happen to hook up with some sharp accountant who doesn't turn them over, you've, you've moved in a... You know, you've been privileged to work in a creative field, which, okay, a, a, 12 years of it was more like a slave camp. But nevertheless, you've had that kind of freedom to work with all those different people that are kind of like-minded to a certain extent. Didn't you find that? Um, is that not reward enough? Oh, yeah, I think, no, no, I'm not complaining about my life at all. But I'm not going to be arrogant enough to recommend anybody <laughs> else jumps into it. I mean, I never really, I don't really mind... You know, I don't sit around for hours on end complaining about one artist or another. I think it's really hard. Yeah. And anybody who manages to make it work, well, good luck to them, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I'm not in... I mean, you have to work extremely hard at what it is you want to do because there aren't really any shortcuts. Believe me, I've tried. And there isn't. Yeah. The only way you get there is by basically getting down to it. OK, well, on that note, Roger Law, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.